good morning. Uh, before I preach this morning, uh, just, a, just a brief moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer. In the history of humanity uh, recorded and uh, in the flow of biblical history, there are uh, very few ways to ground legitimacy of a government or of a state. Uh, the most traditional, the one for which uh, Israel yearned, as you know from the Old Testament, was a monarchy. And uh, over time, the monarchy has been the most long-enduring way of establishing governmental legitimacy. Uh, of course, the deal with the monarch is they can be good or bad. The uh, American break from the British monarchy was uh, considered quite personal on both sides. One of the most amazing gifts of, uh, of providence and history has been the, the fact that uh, the nation that broke from England and from the British crown in the 18th century would turn around by the end of the 19th century and certainly in the 20th century to be the closest uh, ally, so much so that Winston Churchill would speak of one community of the English-speaking nations, and uh, George VI and his queen consort Elizabeth would come to the United States and uh, be greeted as not merely celebrities, as the press might make them, uh, but as uh, leaders on the world stage who were a part of our own history as well. I mention that because uh, Britain is quite uh, consumed at the moment with the knowledge that Queen Elizabeth, uh, her doctors, have called the family to her bedside. And uh, so we're talking about uh, at least what in Britain is understood to be an emergency related to the queen who is 96 years old and uh, is, uh, has been on the throne for 70 years, the longest reign. And what many people don't know, and I think just speaking as Christians, is that uh, this has been one of the great concerns, especially the 20th century, is legitimacy. And when it comes to the British monarchy, uh, the crisis was, was double, but most particularly the crisis was acute in the 1930s when uh, a very unworthy man rose to the, to the monarchy and then abdicated. And uh, that came after the monarchical crises that brought to an end the crowned heads of Russia and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and it looked like the House of Windsor may be going the same way. But uh, three monarchs saved the British monarchy as uh, a sign of stability, rectitude, and uh, responsibility for the nation. Elizabeth II is the longest reigning of them. Uh, I, I know a man as a dear friend who has been a chaplain to Her Majesty and is a deeply convictional evangelical and uh, has assured me that she is not only the, uh, the head of the Church of England as its uh, supreme head on earth, but is also a believer. In her Christmas messages just over the course of the last several years, she has made her, uh, her doctrinal understanding more and more clear. Now, we're not monarchists. The reason why I think 
we are drawn to monarchy is because we seek legitimacy. Americans, I think, rightly have taken a very different path, but we do recognize how rare it is that you would have someone who would serve with such rectitude and such seriousness and devotion for 70 years. And we understand that our sister nation is, uh, is likely to be experiencing a transition. Now, anyone who knows the monarchy also knows that there have been people drawn to the bedside of a monarch many times, of only for the monarch to turn out to have unusually tenacious powers. Maybe the case. But uh, just with a sense of historical moment, I want us to pray, and uh, to pray for Queen Elizabeth and, uh, and for her family and for a nation. And remember, the entire world needs pictures of legitimacy. And when they are rare, they make them all the more precious. Let's pray. Our Father, we just come before you to, uh, to pray for a woman known to you from eternity past and, and known to the world as Queen Elizabeth II. And Father, we pray for Her Majesty that she would be, first of all, at peace with you, her sins forgiven, and her eternal destiny secure in Christ. Father, we pray that you would be with her, and if it be your will that you strengthen her for continued life, if it be your will to take her home, uh, that you would do so in a way that brings her peacefully home. Father, we pray for her family, and we pray especially for her nation. And as there may be a transition, we pray that it will be one that will surprise the world uh, in strength and in dignity. Father, we are reminded that when the British monarch is crowned, the music at the climax of the coronation is a song entitled Zadok the Priest, in which there is an anointing. And Father, we have read the Scriptures enough to know how important that is. Father, we just pray that, uh, that Your glory will be seen and Your providential ordering of the nations will be seen in a way that Your people will see it in these days. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. I want to have a bit of a heart-to-heart -heart, uh, with you this morning. And as I do so, I want to begin with Scripture. And we need every word of this psalm, the 139th psalm. This is indeed a psalm of David. It was meant to be one part, and I read it as one part. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as is light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That psalm has been precious to me just about the entirety of my life. And it is broken into different stanzas, and different stanzas receive different attention, but I wanted to read it as a whole in order that we could see it as a whole. I thought it might be appropriate here in the beginning of this academic year, after the summer of 2022, to talk about the sanctity of human life and the challenges that we face and to place these in a biblical frame. The time calls for it. When uh, the last academic semester came to an end, we were anticipating a major decision from the United States Supreme Court known as the Dobbs case out of Mississippi. It was known then that it might well be possible that that decision would be the opportunity for a majority of the Supreme Court to reverse the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, which had basically, if not technically, legalized abortion on demand in the United States. As you well know, something of a legal soap opera ensued. A draft opinion by Justice Samuel Alito was leaked to the press, unprecedented in the history of the United States Supreme Court. And yet the question was, will the final majority opinion actually be so sweeping as this draft would suggest? It turned out that it was. And the Dobbs decision will be long remembered, and if the republic long survives, it will be long discussed and debated, as will the Roe v. Wade decision. But the bottom line on all of this is that constitutionally, the court has now rightly corrected an error, an error made in 1973 in determining by majority opinion, and a 7-2 opinion, by the way, in 1973, that a woman had a constitutional right to destroy the unborn life within her. There is, of course, no mention of the 
the horror of abortion in the United States Constitution. It was constructed ex post facto by justices who were determined actually to reach a conclusion. And we know this because they said so. The papers of Justice Blackmun, who wrote the majority opinion, are very clear. They came up with a decision and then had to figure out a theory. And the theory itself was known to be weak from the beginning. Even many who favored abortion understood that the legal theory of a so-called right to privacy is, uh, is basically non-existent in any sense that can be applied to the killing of the unborn. But this raises another issue because even in the 1970s and, and as we shall see in the 1960s when the issue leapt into the national conversation, the big issue was that the nation was immediately divided between those who saw the issue of abortion in terms of one person and those who saw the question in terms of two. Now, we understand that in biblical terms, that's no small thing. In fact, it's hard to imagine an issue of graver consequence. Are we talking about one or are we talking about two? Now, at the very least, I hope just reading Psalm 139 makes very clear from the very beginning there are two, no less than two. There can't be less, fewer than two. How in the world did we arrive at this point where our national conversation is now so divided, more divided than it was in the 1970s when the Roe v. Wade decision erupted, more divided than it was in the late 1970s and during the 1980s when there was the organization of a pro-life movement to push back against the culture of death and the movement for abortion? We're going to be looking at church history in just a moment, but before that, let's just come to American history. How, how, how did this happen? You know, where, where was abortion? And, and how is it that American evangelicals seem to be rather unaware of it and certainly rather silent about it? If you look back in evangelical history and you say, okay, just in the United States, I want to know what evangelicals believed about abortion, say, in 1945, good luck finding anything. What do they believe about abortion in 1965? You will not find much. The Roman Catholic Church was very clear on the issue of abortion, largely by natural law argument, extending the entire moral understanding of everything related to reproduction and fertility and, and sexuality and pregnancy, and it was, it was all a composite picture. And um, abortion was very clearly condemned by the Roman Catholic Church, which after all, uh, claimed to be an international body in, in which there were many overlapping secular jurisdictions in which abortion was more and less a fact of life and a fact of discussion. More so, by the way, in certain nations in Europe far more than in the United States at the time. American evangelicals have to be defined by both of those terms, American evangelicals. Very few Americans were talking about abortion until the late 1960s and the early 1970s. The reason for that is actually quite clear. There was very little legal abortion in the United States. But there's something else to that. And you have to go back to the 19th century. In the 19th century, particularly in the growing urban areas of the United States, and you can just take New York City as, as the, the largest, of course, and the, the, the one that had the greatest influence, the medical profession really begins to emerge uh, in the American context as a profession. Now, there, there were doctors on the frontier 
and uh, let's just say it was frontier medicine. But the rise of medicine as a modern profession in the United States has a great deal to do with doctors in New York City and other leading cities of the country in the second half of the 19th century. And in the second half of the 19th century, establishing medicine as a profession, and, and by the way, you can say Hippocrates had done that, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm also, explicitly forbidding abortion. That was an early professional development going all the way back to ancient Greece. But in terms of the modern era, defining medicine as a modern profession, those doctors who were seeking to professionalize medicine focused on abortion as that which medical professionals morally must not do. It became known as the physician's crusade against abortion. In other words, just to define the profession of medicine, it was defined in its early era, at least in much of the public consciousness, as dividing those who would do abortions from those who would not. Those who would be medical professionals, who would be physicians, were those who were morally and medically opposed to the abhorrence of abortion. Now, that meant that medical professionals were not to perform abortions, something that, by the way, is so deeply driven into the medical profession that even now, the majority of physicians would have nothing to do with abortion, if nothing else, than for the stigma of abortion and the sense of professional shame. Even if they fear not God nor man, they do fear being on the wrong side of professional rectitude. Now, that may be changing. There are those, of course, who understand that abortion can never be fully morally acceptable by a culture unless the medical profession is willing to go along, and there are those who would seek to lead it to be so. But the point is that by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, there is very little public conversation about abortion. Now, we know just given human sinfulness, we know that abortions took place, but abortions did not take place in a way that was discussed in the larger society. And uh, even though in a city like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, San Francisco at the time, especially the closer you got to a coast, there were coded signals being sent in advertisements and newspapers, and you could, you could figure that out, but it was a part of the underworld, not a part of the culture. It also did have primary concentration in areas, especially along the coast, where there was a lot of international commerce, a big concentration of population, which is to say that Southern Baptists of the era had very little, very little to add to the thinking about abortion because it was not on the screen. Most Southern Baptists did not speak of it ever. I was 13 years old when I came home from school one day and walked into the house and found horrifying pictures on the dining room table. I can still remember it because I had never seen such things and could not imagine why my mother would have such pictures. I did not know her ever to be someone drawn into pictures of some kind of murderous underworld. Well, my mother was actually someone very engaged in the pro-life movement before 
it was well known as a movement. These were pictures actually taken, and they, they, were, they were published by Roman Catholics because the Catholics were far ahead of evangelicals in uh, publicizing the challenge of abortion. Part of that is because they were concentrated where in urban areas, and particularly in the Northeast and other areas, that abortion was, a, was an ongoing conversation. It wasn't in the South. But it came that way. It came to be very much because I was also... Uh, 13, when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down in 1973 in January. And um, it was discussed as a horrible, horrible, horrifying development, but it seemed to be somewhat remote to me. It evidently seemed to be quite remote to many Southern Baptists. American evangelicals just were caught theologically and biblically unarmed when the abortion issue landed unavoidably on the American scene. Roe v. Wade was predictable in one sense if you've been following the liberal jurisprudence of the court, but frankly, that wasn't something that consumed the attention of most evangelicals in the nation. The conversation about the Supreme Court, by the way, that is now a part of our national conversation would have been unimaginable 50 years ago. Americans didn't really talk about the third branch of government because it was something secretive taking place in a marble temple in Washington, D.C., cited rarely, its inner workings mysterious. All that now very much changed. Now, let me just interject here. Many of us have been praying working, striving, pleading, advocating for something like the Dobbs decision and the reversal of Roe v. Wade for right out a century because the 50-year mark of Roe v. Wade is coming up in, in January. I am uh, pretty far into a writing project on these matters, and uh, one of the amazing things is just to go back and to see that all of a sudden, American evangelicals in general, and Southern Baptists in particular, had to figure out what to say about abortion. And what we said wasn't, wasn't very good originally, just to be honest. The shock of abortion led to the reality that uh, Southern Baptists and evangelicals just didn't have much helpful to say. And, and even with the, the, the progression of issues, and I, I mean, it, it's, hard, it's hard to put things in historical context. That's why this is a message, yes, and, and yet it is a word from the heart. I'm just kind of speaking to you because I, I feel like this is the kind of conversation that needs to take place among us here at this seminary and, and this college, just so we can kind of look each other in the eye and say, we really, really, we really know what we think about this and why we believe what we believe. It's hard to, in historical context to go back and say, look, if you just look at the span of human history, and uh, let's, just, let's just say for the, 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 the want of an argument that uh, we're talking about somewhere between and, and, you know, three and four millennia that we can, uh, we can track pretty well in biblical history. And, and, and so we, we, we look there and we say, okay, okay. Do you recognize that until 1930, not one Christian denomination on earth advocated any form of birth control? Not until 1930. Now, again, 
that's less than 100 years. You can do the math. Less than 100 years in that, that entire flow of biblical history, of human history, just of recent recorded history, and that was the Church of England, the Lambeth Conference in 1930. They hemmed it in with all kinds of qualifications, but basically they had thrown the barn door open. And by the way, that was 1930. There were not many technologies for birth control that were available. That became far more relevant when the pill was developed in the late 50s and then the early 60s. But a succession of issues came in, in, in which the sexual revolution and the vast social changes of the modern age brought about redefinition of all kinds of things, sexuality, reproduction, life, you know, c contraception and birth control was followed by divorce and, and uh, the relaxation also of uh, strictures against sex outside of marriage. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, sexual mores are being loosened intentionally in the name of human liberation by a progressivist culture. And, and, and then if, if you're, if you're going to have contraception, and, and now it's, it's just going to be widely available with the, the pill bringing about a revolution, then, and, and, and then if marriage is going to be just redefined as a lifestyle choice and no longer a lifetime monogamous covenant union, but rather a, 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 some kind of relationship of social recognition for personal convenience. And, and, and then if sexuality is going to be just loosened from the bonds of marriage altogether, then you're going to have at least what became known as the threat of pregnancy or the risk of pregnancy. Now, the amazing thing is, is that even if you think in those terms, the amazing thing is that throughout human history, Risk of pregnancy would have been a very rare, if ever, a conscious thought. The failure of pregnancy would have been the greater concern shared amongst human beings. It would be, it would be the failure of the ability to reproduce. It would be the, the loss of a child. It would be the, uh, the failure to, uh, to welcome a baby that would have been seen as the risk. But all of a sudden, the sexual revolution changes everything because now with, with the sex outside of marriage and sex being celebrated by the society and with birth control being at least an option and with divorce and, and non-marital sex being made legitimate in the eyes of the culture, then all of a sudden you've got a risk of pregnancy. And what will you do? Not only that, you have second wave feminism that comes along. First wave feminism was basically about voting rights. Uh, second wave feminism comes along. Second wave feminism demands absolute equality with the man. I think the word they would use now would be equity in the distinction between equality. You know, equality to vote's not enough. We need equality of life. And the argument was made, and by the way, this was central to Roe v. Wade. People, you know, I, I realize I'm speaking to people who are about, uh, well, something like 30 years younger than Roe v. Wade. I just want you to know that one of the arguments being made for Roe v. Wade and for abortion was that a woman, in order to be equal with a man, must be equally able to be unpregnant. Now, one of the first things we have to see, just from a Christian perspective, and I want you to see that you have an instinct in you. You, you I believe, as, as, as the students at Southern Seminary and Boyce College, and certainly those who are on this faculty and others, in us is an instinct, a, a, an intuition, is, a, is, a, is an internal understanding about this issue that did not exist, horrifyingly enough, among many evangelicals and most evangelicals who had not thought through these issues. And uh, just, to, just to put it bluntly, 
we, we are now at least a half century after this argument really began in the position to be now absolutely accountable if we cannot answer these questions and understand why Christians must contend for the dignity and sanctity of human life, and that means human life. It means human life at all stages of development from the moment of fertilization until natural death. All right. I said evangelicals in America were caught off guard, and indeed they were. We were, speaking in continuity. Aware that abortion represented the culture of death in all of its horror, the question was, how in the world could evangelicals have been so disarmed? I just want to share some things with you. And uh, this is hard, okay? So this is, this is hard, but we need to feel this. I brought paper with me. I usually don't. I just want you to understand what's at stake. When people talk about the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, when people talk about the recovery of the Southern Baptist Convention, the recovery from what? And uh, as I've tried to explain it over the course of the last 30-plus years, 40 years, I've tried to explain it saying that two issues were paramount, the inerrancy of Scripture and abortion. And I want to tell you they function differently because seminary professors could get up in front of, uh, of churches and say, I don't really like the word inerrancy. That I, that I, 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 I prefer other words, and, and they would basically undermine inerrancy while claiming it to be nothing than a matter of verbal preference. You know, I, I don't believe in the, in the verbal plenary understanding of inspiration. That's a modern development in the English-speaking evangelical world. I believe X and Y and Z, and it left a lot of Southern Baptist lay people completely confused as to who actually held to the right view of Scripture. But then the issue of abortion came along at the very same time. And look, there were faculty members here in this institution heavily involved in the abortion rights movement. We had a professor of ethics here who was one of the, the, the chief uh, uh, ethicists in the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. The leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention at that time was not only liberal in many ways theologically, but our Christian Life Commission, which was the, the organization that was later renamed the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, was actually headed by someone who was an advocate of legal abortion. The SPC was also a different kind of convention at the time, and it was basically much smaller attendance. You can just look at the back and see the chart of how many attended. It was largely denominational insiders, and the uh, leadership of the Christian Life Commission had inordinate uh, influence in the resolutions that were passed. But it remains a matter of Southern Baptist conscience that in 1971, so that's two years before Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution, and I can only read uh, part of it, and recognizing that, uh, that, that abortion is a controversial issue, and then therefore be it resolved that this convention expressed the belief that society has a responsibility to affirm through the laws of the state a high view of the sanctity of human life, including fetal life, in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Notice high view. That's all high view. Be it further resolved, we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow for the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. It's 1971. Now, any way you look at it, 
the Southern Baptist Convention, whether it understood what it was doing or not, called for the legalization of abortion under certain circumstances. And by the way, those certain circumstances reflected in the Roe decision itself, including the life and health of the mother, and you have to add the Doe decision that was the companion to Roe very quickly thereafter. You, you just have to, to look at that and recognize the phrase, the physical life and then the health of the, the uh, mental health of the mother. The, the mental health became the great barn door opened to legalized abortion virtually on demand. 1974, the Southern Baptist Convention came back, didn't do much better. 1976, the bicentennial year, the Southern Baptist Convention of the United States of America, forgive me. Um, the bicentennial year in the country, President Gerald Ford addressed the Southern Baptist Convention in person in 1976. 1976, a longer resolution on abortion. It, it simply took more time to say basically the same thing. They, they did in 1976 condemn abortion on demand, but did not call for an absolute end to abortion and did not, did not make very clear that the sacredness and dignity of unborn life meant that it must be protected and that abortion must be ended. That basically did not change, and I'm simply fast-forwarding here for time until the 13th of June, 1984, when the Southern Baptist Convention passed its first major resolution calling for the elimination of abortion in the United States. Since then, the paper is thick with uh, resolution statements, actions by the Convention Against Abortion, but you look at that, and let me just say, we need to stand and sit in this room and recognize that this room reminds us of what is at stake. There were messages preached here in this room, and there were arguments for abortion made in this room that remind us that it matters not only temporally, but eternally in terms of the eternal reality of human beings born and unborn what kind of argument is made in this room? So my purpose was not just to think about the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, but that should give you plenty of evidence of why it was absolutely necessary. Necessary that the arguments made in this room and the arguments made in these classrooms are arguments unconditionally for the sanctity and dignity of every single human life, including unborn life. In, uh, in this life, you will confront many bad arguments. Among the bad arguments that I've had to confront are arguments such as the one made by Nicholas Kristof, then columnist for the New York Times. He wrote, let's remember that conservative Christianity's ferocious opposition to abortion is relatively new in historical terms. He goes on to say the Bible does not explicitly discuss abortion. He then proceeded to say, quote, there's no evidence that Christians traditionally believe that life begins at conception. <laughs> well, easily said by someone who claims there is no evidence, who evidently is not at all acquainted with the actual evidence. Consider just the fact that the early church condemned abortion in the strongest possible terms. This is just something for us to understand. We're going to turn to the, back to the Bible, our ultimate authority in just minutes. But I understand the Christian church really was clear about this in a time in the Roman Empire when abortion was considered 
a dignified way to get rid of a problem, and, and it was not just abortion, but also infanticide with unwanted children left on the hills outside Rome and abandoned. The Didache, one of the earliest records of Christian teaching, describes two ways of life, the way of life and the way of death. The way of life demands that Christians, quote, shall not murder a child by abortion nor, nor commit infanticide. Now, again, both of these in the context of the rule of imperial Rome, where such things were considered necessary options. The one's the way of death, that's the way of unbelievers. The way of life, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor commit infanticide. Clement of Alexandria made clear, early church father, the son of women who, quote, in order to hide their immorality, use abortive drugs, which expelled the matter completely dead. Abort at the same time their human feelings. Tertullian went on to say, quote, for us, we may not, speaking of Christians, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. Athenagoras, Hippolytus, Basil the Great, Ambrose, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Augustine, all made very clear. So actually, when someone tells you the Christian church does not have a strong tradition of thinking these things through, by Scripture and reason, that's just false. It is to our shame that there was a time when evangelicals writ large in the United States did not have to think about abortion, and evidently we didn't have to, so we didn't. Then when we had to, we couldn't very well, and we had to figure out how in the world we could understand the reality of abortion in a biblical frame. Time is fleeting here. I just want us to turn back to Psalm 139 and to that central stanza because even as a teenager, this psalm struck me as the most conclusive refutation to the culture of death. Because David, in this Holy Spirit-inspired stanza, speaks of God's knowledge, of his presence. And of course, that's, that's the entire theme of Psalm 139. David says, I can't even flee from your presence. It's impossible. Wherever I go, you are there. But then look at verse 13 and following, because he speaks about the fact that this isn't new, that this has been true for all of his life, and God knew him as his creator even when he was in his mother's womb. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is the most intimate language found anywhere in Scripture about what it means for every single one of us to take shape within a womb. This is not just a material, biological process. This is the divine creator by his own sovereignly chosen glorious means forming us in our mother's womb. It was true for David. It is true for you. It was true for me. It is true for all. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, the Creator's eyes, saw my unformed substance. Now, there again, what, what did they know about the formed and unformed substance? Actually, there was no imaging. There were no images. There were no pictures. The only thing they knew was when a pregnancy ended in miscarriage. 
And there was evidence of the process of formation. Do you realize how shocking it is that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this psalm so long ago, would speak even of, of these, this inward development and would speak of his own prior unformed substance? That unformed substance was David, not an accidental byproduct of human reproduction. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Well, here's an amazing truth. You will never meet a human being who is not God's image. Made in God's image. You, you will never meet you will never meet, you will never see evidence of a human being who is not made in God's image and created by the Creator. You will never see a biological specimen that's a human being. You, 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 you will never see a human fetus, as it is often referred to, without seeing a human being made in God's image. The one thing that is true of every single human being who now lives, will live, or has ever lived is that we began in the meeting together of a sperm and an egg, and in the miracle by which God says, let there be life, and there is life, and that life by His sovereign plan develops over time for His glory, and it is good that we know that. And it is necessary that we protect that. We're out of time. There's much more to say. We'll get back to talking about some of these issues in times ahead. But I want to share just a little story with you that's quite personal. You take for granted, we all take for granted now, that we get to see things because we think evidently human beings get to see such things. But it wasn't until 1965, 1965, I was alive then, I was in first grade then. It wasn't until 1965 that a single human being in all of human history had seen a baby inside a womb healthfully developing. It wasn't until 1965 a Swedish photographer named Leonard Nielsen who figured out a way to use what was then incredibly high technology, lighting and instruments to go inside a womb and trace the gestation of a human baby. He could not get back very far to the beginning, but he could get back far enough that for the first time in all of human history, people could see Life magazine published a special edition in 1965 showing the pictures, the photographs taken by Leonard Nielsen and they astounded the world. Uh, I was, like I say, six. I have no conscious memory of that, but I did get to see those pictures. And you see those pictures and they reveal the glory of God. It wasn't until 1990, that's three years before I came here as president, so that, that you know, that, that's, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, was, uh, was president of the United States. It was 
recent American history. Sounds ancient to some of you. It's not. Take it from me. 1990 was the first time that the very same photographer was able to record by use of the incredible powers of an electron microscope, the very earliest second of life. I, I, I just want you to see these and understand. Just, just let the testimony of these photographs, and I, I have that, by the way, that shows you. My dear wife, Mary, will tell you that when it comes to paper, among other things, I am a pack rat. It's because I can't let certain things go. Here's one of them. This is the August 1990 edition of Life magazine with Leonard Nielsen's photographs of the beginning of life. I can't part with it. But I want you to see just a couple of these images to understand what we're talking about. See and feel the testimony of the glory of God. Look at that. What will you call that? That is not merely a developing human with the potential for life. That is a precious human being. Again, the first time human eyes had ever seen such images. Next. Look at that. That could be you or me. Every single one of us looked like that, but we weren't seen by anyone but God. The most famous photograph is coming next. That's a living baby in the womb, illuminated in the womb, photographed in the womb, already learned to get that thumb in the mouth, sucking the thumb in the womb. And then, just to hold on a moment, that's 1965. And uh, some of those photographs updated by Leonard Nilsson with the technology available in 1990. But still, no one had seen the original moment of conception. No one actually, at some point, expected to. But by 1990, it was possible. And I want you to see this next photograph and recognize that of all the human beings who have ever lived, only a very, very few have ever seen anything like this. That is a human sperm penetrating the outer surface of an egg. What you see there is the physical representation of when the Creator says, let there be this life. And there was life. And there is life. I just want to end with an encouragement to you not only to remain steadfast on this issue and understand why the credibility of the Christian church, the witness of the Christian church rests on the fact that we contend for the sanctity and dignity of every single human life because of the imago dei made in God's image. Every single one born and unborn and we have the knowledge from Scripture, not just by intuition, 
with the knowledge directly from Scripture that it is so. But I also want to give you encouragement to celebrate the gift of life and to think about every single human being you will ever know as one who was once what they call an embryo, a zygote, a fetus, but no less a human being. I just want to remind you that even as those photographs are so astounding and as so few human beings throughout human history have ever seen such sights, we are ultimately not dependent upon those photographs or any photographs or any photographic evidence for our knowledge of the divine nature of the gift of life and what it means for God to form us in our mother's womb because we have an authority far greater than our eyes and an authority far greater than a photograph and it's the authority of the inerrant and fallible word of God. And you have heard that word today. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will defend the right and defend life in our midst and help us faithfully to defend and to contend for life. Indeed, in these days, crucially in the womb, may we do so without fear and without fail. May we do so filled with your wonder. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.